0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This week's
2: meet and 3 is all about food branding and identity in 2020. The good, the bad, and the ugly.
3: Everybody has some Boya product in their pantry, so... Obviously, the biggest kind of loss from all of this is the students really working with a brand that they're very comfortable with, that they're very familiar with.
2: I'll be honest, I was completely floored. I was very surprised that a company, especially in the current climate, would backtrack out of a commitment to address issues of racism. Tune in to Meetin 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
3: Thanks for listening to another episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro, and we have a sweet show for you today, as we talk all about baking traditions in the Midwest. Our first guest literally wrote the book on it. Shauna Siever is a former entertainment reporter turned baker extraordinaire. She began developing and writing recipes when she launched her award-winning baking blog, Piece of Cake, in 2007. Since then, Shauna has contributed food stories, recipes, and expert tips for numerous outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Food 52, Bon Appetit, The Kitchen, Family Circle, Real Simple, Midwest Living, and the list goes on and on. It's a pretty impressive list, I have to say. But She's done even more than that, ladies and gentlemen. Over the last several years, Shauna has written a number of baking-focused cookbooks, including the one we're going to be talking about today, Midwest Made, released in 2019. Very important to the show, Shauna is a Midwestern native of Chicago and has returned to her homeland after a stint on the West Coast. Boy, oh boy, Shauna, you are the woman. And uh, I was telling you uh, before (laughs) offline, I am already a groupie and I want to be you and I grow up uh, after reading the Midwest made book. So thank you.
4: I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. That was such a lovely introduction. (laughs) Thanks. So
3: I, uh, Spent a lot of time with uh, the cookbook, and uh, actually read the introduction. I feel like a lot of times people don 't read introductions to cookbooks; That's they just a great go, point. Like, they, don't, <laughs> they go straight in, but for me, I feel like you know you want the context right and mm-hmm. um, it provided a lot of context and there was this one sentence in the intro that really resonated with me because it kind of is at the soul of what this show and this series is all about so i 'll read the quote. Um, your words, without immigrants, this book you're holding, Midwest Made, its author, that would be you, (laughs) and the region's unique cultural landscape at large simply wouldn't exist. So true. So I want to know, how did your ethnic identity inform your cooking and this cookbook specifically?
4: Well, my ethnic identity is one that I think is really tied to the Midwest. I refer to myself in the book as being a Midwestern mutt, um, (laughs) which is just sort of a funny way of saying there's a little bit of everything in my background. Um, My grandfather was Greek and Sicilian. Both of his parents were immigrants from those countries. And then my grandmother kind of was a mashup of Irish, Swedish, and German. Mm -hmm. And so we had a really eclectic family table. I had a very, you know, a, a tight extended family while I was growing up, and food was always a huge part of the story. And so we saw lots of different types of dishes growing up. It never occurred to me that it was unusual to have, you know, a, such a different mix of dishes on the table. And and for the holidays, of course, it was classic all American cooking. But um, you know, my grandfather was also very into gardening, and and uh, yeah really strong Greek olive oils and strong cheeses at a time in the eighties where a lot of people in the Midwest (laughs) were not, you know, visiting those markets, but that was the food that he grew up with. And so those flavors really influenced me, um, growing up in a way that I didn't really, uh, you know, like a lot of people, I, you know, took it for granted. You take the things of your youth as being kind of normal, uh, Mm um, and then going to California for 13 years and sort of realizing, um, that those things y- you don't find. I mean, of course, now you you find things more, you know, it's easier to find all kinds of great markets out there. But specifically sure. with baking, you know, the bakeries of the Midwest really mm-hmm. showcase that that immigrant influence as well. And so I wanted that to be a really big part of the story of the book. And I think it's what makes the region so unique. No question about it.
3: And I noticed uh, in the book, so many of these ethnic type of pastries and you have a whole ode to kolache. And I actually, on a totally different episode, talked about uh, kolache at length. But, uh, you know, kolachi is in there. I think you have pushkis as well. Um, you know, give me some examples of some of these ethnic pastries that you included into the book, because I'm sure that our listeners want to uh,
4: hear about them and and probably want to make them after they hear about them. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them actually show up in the very first chapter, which is the sweet dough's chapter. And that's because a lot of the great old world baking traditions come from the European countries, particularly Eastern European countries and, and those people who then brought those recipes to the Midwest. Most of them were, you know, really gifted farmers. And so the great farming opportunities in the Midwest is what brought a lot of our immigrants to us here. Um, And so with that comes the really old school way of baking with yeast before there was any sort of, you know, baking powder to be you know that didn't come into play until the late eighteen hundreds, so the earlier part of that century you had people bringing these yeast risen doughs that they just did the most incredible things with and so, like you said, um you know the uh, Punchki is one of those those are a yeast uh raised donuts, and the uh, houska or hoska uh, which is uh, a Czech bread that's like a braided mm-hmm. bread, kind of similar to a brioche uh really delicious, and then potitza, which is another Czech bread. Um, or it can be Slovenian and it has a couple different um, pronunciations, but that's that really beautiful walnut sort of swirled bread that you see. Right. And, you know, such a simple dough, uh, there's a buttery yeast raised coffee cake dough that's in that chapter that is the building block for a number of different recipes. And that's really how a lot of the early bakers of the Midwest operated. They had a couple of really great foundation recipes and just got really creative with it. And that's a big part of the Midwestern story with food as well is just the innovation and using what you have Absolutely. to make something new, um, and never being wasteful. I mean, that's a huge part of the story.
3: Yeah, every guest that that we've had on on this show thus far has said exactly that. There, there are these repetitive themes when we talk about Midwest and Midwestern foodways, and you're bringing them all up here again, which is great, and putting them into practice in in one book and in one area, which is baking, uh, which is which is why I really wanted to have you on the show. So. I know that, you know, you didn't just use recipes from, you know, your family. You, it's my understanding you actually traveled uh, the region in the Midwest to research for this book. So, gosh, I can imagine that that was one heck of an adventure. Uh, (laughs) Do you happen to have any stories, uh, favorite stories from your time on the road when you were researching for this?
4: Yes. Uh, I mean, inquiring minds want to (laughs) know. One of the greatest things about traveling for this book is that most Midwesterners are just so, um, you know, not close to the vest with their family recipes, but they certainly don't. <laughs> are you sure them... about that? Are you sure? <laughs>
3: um,
4: they certainly don't. Either they're, they, they keep them top secret or they're like, why do you want to know about that? You know, like that's just such a regular old thing. Themselves not realizing that, no, things like punchki are special. You know, you don't find them on the coast, you know, or if you do, you find them by another name. And so the history of them is different here. And so people, once they found out that I was interested in these things, you know, they really want to open up to you because people don't usually dig deeper about, about these kinds of recipes. And certainly when I started writing this book, as you said, there are family recipes in the book and that was really the underlying spirit of it. Like any author you write from your own experience to start with, but you know going back to those immigrant influencing influences knowing there was going to be such a deeper story if i brought that part into it and then when you travel to pockets of the country like areas in minnesota for example that still have such a strong scandinavian influence and so they have all those pastries or in wisconsin you have some some towns that are extremely german and so you're going to find some great stuff um in the bakeries there. But one of my favorite trips specifically in making the book was going to Iowa. I did like a four or five day uh, trip from Chicago to a little bit past Des Moines with one of my best friends who's actually an Iowa native. And so it was just really fun for her too to kind of learn more of this stuff that she had there. People were so open in sharing ideas like you got to go here and you got to go there. Yes. We had this crazy list Just from talking to the servers at restaurants we stopped at and things like that. Um, But the Yarsma Bakery, which is in Pella, Iowa, which has a really deep uh, Dutch history, they're known for their Dutch letters. And so that's one of the Iowa recipes that ended up in the book. And, you know, the bakery has all the, you know, the tulips outside and the little, you know, white and blue pottery and the wooden shoes. Love it. I mean, it's fabulous, really fabulous, and a really fun recipe, too. Um, And so that's kind of what that area is known for and how. One of the ways that Iowa ended up being represented, but um, yes, there was a lot of great travel and 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 actually a lot of digging deeper right in my hometown in Chicago, which of course there's so much, sure, so much, yeah, there's so much that you can find just in this one city. It's really that's a great influence as well. I think if I was from another part of the Midwest, I wouldn't have had such a strong sense of of all of the different influences that are here and you try and cover as much as you can and what the majority is I mean I wish I could put every great you know Vietnamese pastry from Minnesota or go into some of the Somalian desserts and it's just I decided to sort of write from what I knew um, rather than trying to put myself as some sort of uh, food historian expert you know sure um, and make it a more personal
3: book but look, I mean, I think just this this conversation, I think, is showing, or at least you know, uh, speaking since we're on the radio, um, to to listeners and to the audience exactly what I'm hoping to convey is that. The Midwest is more than just this meat and potatoes. You know, you're talking about all this cornucopia of different flavors, different ethnicities, different types of, of pastries. And you don't think about that necessarily. Um, and so this really, I think, gives, I hope, at least I hope, um, that Uh, insight and that journey to listeners to get at least a taste of all of the different types of things that are in the Midwest. And I know that, you know, your book tries to do that as well. Um, So one thing that I really was interested in, again, in in reading the intro and and in Midwest Made, you kind of put baking into the context of the Midwest, um, kind of you know, basically putting this concept of baking into the Midwest food is a state of mind, right? So you have five baking tenants of the great Midwest. Please walk
4: us through those five and why they are uh, the baking tenants of the great Midwest. Yes. So these were really the guideposts that I developed for myself really early on, even when I was crafting the proposal, because I knew, first of all, doing something so personal and something so complex was going to really need some clear sort of entry points into a really Mm -hmm. vast amount of information and recipes. And so what I did for myself is I defined the five baking tenants of the Midwest as bake big, bake easy, bake with purpose, bake in the present, and bake in the past. Um, and you know, bake big, big meaning big batches, like the nine by thirteen is the quintessential symbol of midwestern hospitality Absolutely.
3: on on for everything, whether it's a hot dish or a cake.
4: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and that's about sharing, you know, feeding a feeding a crowd. And, of course, with baking easy, you know you want to keep it simple and you want to use what you have uh, first and foremost. And then if you have to add a special ingredient here and there, you can do that. Um, bake with purpose is one of those things that's why I love baking in general and why I've chosen to make that my food writing career and not savory food. Because for me, there's always going to be a reason why we bake. I always say that we have to cook, but we get to bake. Like baking is always going to be... I love that. Yeah. It's always going to be something beyond the everyday, right? Like whether it's a birthday or it could just be a Wednesday night and you're really craving something to watch, you know, with your Your trashy show you're going to see or whatever it is you (laughs) want to have. I mean, there's a reason why you're going to create something, right? Which is great. Right. And, um, and the baking in the present is very much about, you know, trying to find modern ways to innovate, um, old school recipes, which I did a lot of for this book. There's no box jello. There's no cake mix or cool whip. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. I still totally crave those things from time to time and I grew up on them. But for this book, really trying to unravel a lot of those church community recipes that run on a lot of those processed ingredients right. and sure. kind of bring them into the fresher sort of modern age, how people like to bake and eat now. And then baking from the past. I mean, you know that the tradition and, and upholding tradition and keeping those things alive is very much a part of the Midwestern character. And that's Absolutely. reflected in the, in the recipes as well.
1: The-
3: i'm going to have to keep that in mind next time I bake because I myself am a baker uh, I mean I like to cook as well, but baking is my main is my main jam yeah um for for just all those reasons i mean i and and because it does have this when you bake there is more i think sentiment heart there is that purpose there um you you do bake for a reason and I guess I never really thought about it uh you just kind of do it right but when you really break it down I can see exactly why these uh five tenants really were your guideposts as as you approached uh as you said a very large amount of information which is really difficult to tackle yeah Uh, something something that I've learned doing doing this series as well is that it's a a lot of ground, literally and figuratively to cover, yes uh, so I, I want to uh, tie things up here, uh, kind of looking to the future of Midwestern food because you talked about how in again, in uh, your cookbook, Midwest made about how much there 's so much ground and heritage and recipes to cover. Um, in an area that people consider flyover country. This term flyover country continues to come up in in my work. It's a term I'm not crazy about. Maybe you're not crazy about it either. Uh, (laughs) Because because it it intrinsically means dismissive, right? And so why do you think so many have dismissed the Midwest and its food? And what
4: can we do to change that going forward? Well, I think... I mean, just to make it very current, I mean, think about the foods that are most Instagrammable right now are going to be these really sort of exciting uh, new flavor combinations, really brightly colored, running on a lot of seasonal produce all year long, which is what's so sexy and great about California cuisine. I mean, you can't deny that appeal. Um, On the other hand, I think something that makes eating in the Midwest so special is that you're not going to find the same dish all year round. You're not going to be able to make the same salad in July as you can in January if you really want to use local ingredients, you know? Right. Um, and so you you – I find now that I'm back here, um, you know, perfect examples like all of our great strawberries just came in. Well, I fed my baby strawberries in, in February and they were red all the way through and gorgeous when by when I had them in San Francisco, you know. And now we're we're back here. And you you've got to wait for that perfect moment. And when you cut mm-hmm. open the perfect strawberry and and know that it's only gonna be there for so long, you know, it becomes much more special. And I think people here understand that. Um, And that's why we have so many fairs and festivals specifically (laughs) on food. I mean, I can think of
3: at least three strawberry festivals in Northeastern Ohio that you know, people set their calendar, myself included, on apple festivals, zucchini festivals, pumpkin festivals, potato festivals. Yes. A- and and I, it's that celebration of the land.
4: Yes. And that's exactly it. I mean, the harvest is an enormous part, you know, and the, and the seasons are an enormous part of, of I think, how, um, you know, we we do our baking, too, because it's not easy to make a fruit dessert in the wintertime. That's where no. you get more into your comfort baking, what I like to call, you know, counter- cakes, um, those things that are really going to keep and be hearty and um, shareable. Um, But I think, you know, it's just a very long time of people having this sort of certain mindset about the Midwest, that every state is the same, that the entire thing is homogenous, that, you know, and and that's just simply not true. I mean, not only because even today, we still have such a great mix of people from all over the world who come here to work and to to live their lives. Um, but it's it's the history as well, you know? And I think a lot of times these influences become so deeply embedded mm-hmm. in the culture that you don't see them anymore. And I think it is compounded by the fact that the Midwestern character is to just not run your mouth so much. Like you don't have right. to brag about every single thing. I mean, we're going to have the strawberry festival. Why do we have to, you know, and there's just right. this feeling of like, that's how you have to talk. Like it is what it is, you know, and it's great, but we don't have to toot our own horn about it all the time. That's just a very Midwestern I I totally agree. But you know what? Um, You're
3: shining a fantastic light on that though, through your book. No, showing you. people, you know, that that there is so much richness and diversity here and so many different flavors and so many different cultures. Um, and you're not necessarily tooting your horn, you're just putting it out there for people <laughs> to enjoy. <laughs>
4: I'm glad that people have found it one of the best things is people who are from the midwest have found things in this book that they haven't heard of and yeah. the whole and and at the same time a lot of really great all-american recipes that people go oh my god I had no idea the roots of that were in the midwest and you could tell a really interesting story about a recipe that has become you know quintessentially just American you know if you want to talk about something that's that's flyover and bland it's the word you know American it's that you right. know, catch-all phrase um and so some of those actually have very deep roots. Uh, it's just we don't share the story as much as we as we should. And so I'm glad people are finding that in the book. Well, and I'm glad that you came on our show
3: to tell this story, your story, and how we can together tell the story of the Midwest. Shauna Siever, thank you so much for being on uh, Eat Your Heartland Out today. Thank you so much.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency Tart Cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
3: I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Selena Zito. Selena is a journalist from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right over the border from me in Ohio, as a matter of fact. She writes for The Washington Examiner, The New York Post, appears regularly on television and radio, and is the author of The Great Revolt about the 2016 election. So hearing all of this, you may be asking yourself, what is a political journalist from Pittsburgh doing on a show about Midwestern food? Well, you're about to find out because we're welcoming Selena right now. Hey, how are you? Hey, Capri. How are you doing? I am great. We're so excited to have you on the show. And uh, you're the perfect guest, actually, to bookend our last guest, um, Shauna Seaver, who wrote the cookbook Midwestern Made. In her book, she talks about the phenomena of the cookie table. And I know that you've written about the cookie table um, and have made cookies for the table. So tell our listeners about your connection to the cookie table tradition and what it's all about.
1: What makes it even more uh, meaningful for me to talk about this today is today's the anniversary that a six year anniversary that I was hauling 3000 cookies in the back of my Jeep and that was all I got. I couldn't fit anything else in the Jeep. I had to make two trips to the to the mountains uh, for my daughter's wedding in 2014. Uh, So, uh, you know, I made over 3,000 cookies. I had to take 10 days off from work uh, to pull this off. But the cookie table uh, has been a tradition, not only in my family, but in families throughout my neighborhood and then the neighborhoods outside of that and the neighborhoods outside of that for as long as I could remember and going back as far as my grandmother's a generation who came here in the beginning of the 20th century.
3: Right. And, and so while you're from western Pennsylvania and I'm from northeastern Ohio, we are bordering communities very similar uh, throughout the Rust Belt. And Shauna Seaver's book, she talks about the cookie table and references my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, specifically. We didn't get into it about the cookie table because I knew I was going to have you on. And I knew <laughs> that you, you know, really had this hands on experience with the cookie table. Um, so, you know, three thousand cookies that's a lot for one person to make. You said it took you 10 days, but you know, and you obviously talked about how it's a tradition in your family, in your area, in our area. I mean, it's pervasive throughout Ohio. It's pervasive across uh, the Italian American communities, predominantly in the Midwest um, and within our region. Um, you don't see it as much from example, for example, like in New York, New Jersey, Italian. So it really is a regional thing. Um, but Uh, Maybe you can give a little bit of context of why these cookie tables show up at weddings, what their significance is, and what kind of cookies you can actually find.
1: So the tradition began, and the only reason I understand this is because my grandmother explained it to me, and she was one of she was part of the generation that began this tradition. So immigrants, they didn't need to be Italian. This is a tradition that crosses a lot of ethnic uh, groups. Uh, Polish. I guess
3: we just have a lot of Italians
1: here, <laughs> or and, or people are marrying Italians, and therefore somebody's
3: bringing the cookie table, so there's no discernment.
1: So the tradition began because when that first generation arrived here, that wave of of immigrants from across Europe arrived here in the beginning of the 20th century, they didn't have a lot of money. In fact, the reason that they fled, as they used to call the old country, was because there was severe poverty. And so, but when their children married, whether they married an Italian, which was preferred if you were Italian, but also started to cross against the uh, 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 go across the different immigrant um, populations that filled places like Pittsburgh, like Youngstown, like Toledo. um, Was they wanted to show off when their when Mm -hmm. their daughters uh, got married? and when their sons got married. But because they didn't have much money, the one thing they could show off were the baking traditions that they brought from the old country. So as a way of, of, Uh, letting guests know that there was something very special about this family was for the moms and the aunts and the daughters and the granddaughters. And trust me, it was only women at that time. And there was espresso and wine involved, which made a very unique uh, condition at the table. But they would get together and they would make hundreds and hundreds of cookies, taking great pride in the in in the ingredients that they used and the way that they decorated them. And they would place them on tables. Often these marriages happened in church basements, in backyards, um, at Uncle Leo's restaurant on the second floor. Uh, but and but the first thing a guest would see would be the presentation of the cookies from the old country. Now, they couldn't give their daughter an elaborate wedding. They didn't have a ton of money for the guests, but they certainly made the guests feel as though they had something special from that particular family. That tradition never ended. In fact, if you go to a wedding in Youngstown or Pittsburgh or all the places where this tradition is carried out, you don't judge... Oh, what the woman, what the bride's dress looks like, or the mother of the bride or the bridesmaids. That's the least concern when you walk into that wedding. It's if you have a cookie table and if you have sufficient ability to take at least two to three dozen cookies home yourself in a very nice convenient container.
3: That is is that, that—that is truth. I mean, it, <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, um what's going on. It, the cookie table is really the star of the show even more than the bride. There's no question about yes. that because it is so elaborate. And really, it's also frowned upon if you buy cookies for the cookie table. Oh. You know, you if that's yeah. just a big no-no. I mean, you have to be making and freezing cookies sometimes for, you know, months uh, before a wedding to have that volume sufficient enough to show that you, um, you know, have... Uh, that kind of presentation that so many of us have become accustomed to Um, when you come to weddings in the Midwest and and in this case, Western Pennsylvania, which is a bit of an adopted part of the Midwest, which I want to ask you about in a minute. But before we get there, um, I want to talk about the actual cookies on the table. And I know that everybody's traditions are slightly a little bit different, but from your experience, um, both personally and, and maybe any of the research you've done for some of your writing what are the the type of cookies that you may see on the table?
1: Well, so one of the most important ones are the pignoli, especially among the Italians. Those are made with pine nuts and they have a light, airy, texture to them and they taste great with espresso that is that is a very important um, um, cookie that you find at almost all weddings there's also the rum ball which is not a baked cookie but it's made with ground nuts and uh, uh, ground typically like vanilla wafers and rum and and cocoa and doused, rolled into a ball and doused into uh, in confectionery sugar. Uh, that's an important one. And when you're Italian, the Neapolitan cookie, or as the non-Italians call it, the rainbow cookie, right, is is a critically important cookie. Not only because of taste and texture, it's made with marzipan. It has different vibrant jellies in between traditionally apricot and raspberry um, and and it has a yellow pink and green uh, dough uh, in different layers and a really dark bittersweet chocolate hard icing on top and it's cut like little bricks not only is it delicious it is also incredibly colorful and an important part of a wedding table.
3: You're making me hungry right now. And I, I, you I and, and, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to to bake uh, right this minute, <laughs> but maybe I could go down to Jimmy's Italian store on Belmont Avenue and get me some of this stuff, which, oh, yeah. you know, coming coming from from our vibrant, uh, you know, immigrant rich communities you can always find an ethnic grocery store ethnic bakery which is we're really blessed to have and one of the reasons why i've you know doing this show is to try to highlight some of the diversity uh and the richness of our culinary culture throughout our region Um, one of the cookies that i know that we make um is is what we call bonbon cookie we make it still every year for christmas but you know it's it's a lemon or almond it's kind of shaped a bit like the um The rum balls that you were talking about, but uh, it's a bit of kind of like a drop cookie and then it's um, it's flavored. It's almond, but then it's flavored with a bit of a very light glaze that's lemon and then um, some very uh, colorful sprinkles. And and that's one that you can actually look up as. And if you try to find it online, you, you can actually find it as Italian wedding cookie. Yes. Uh, which I find kind of funny.
1: <laughs> you know, you, you what is so wonderful about this tradition is that areas that we grew up in, in particular the mid Midwest, people forget places like Pittsburgh or. or or Youngstown or Toledo were known as these melting pots and as new each generation of immigrants came in and each wave of immigration immigrants came in they intermarried and all of a sudden you had all these great mixes of foods in particular cookies at these cookies cookie tables. And, and you know, food is always the great connector. It comforts us. It pulls us together. We can talk about its construction, its ingredients. One of the other really endearing things about making cookies, while well, I individually made 3,000 cookies for my daughter's wedding, there was a Sunday afternoon where my mom and my sisters and my daughter and my daughter's future mother-in-law, we pulled out the long tables, we put sheets on them, and we baked for Hours and that sense of community and hmm. bonding can't be replaced by any other thing.
3: I'm so glad you brought that up because there is that intergenerational. Um, aspect to the cookie table and the fact that, you know, the the future mother-in-law was also involved shows how the food is bringing people together, uh, blending the families, um, developing that sense of camaraderie and passing on tradition and creating new traditions as well by bringing more people in and having that intergenerational experience, you know, passed down from grandmother to mother to daughter. It's just, it's just a wonderful, um, Tradition and a great visual as, a, as you talk about bringing out the long tables and to baking for hours. I can have these visions in my head of, of the flour <laughs> and the sprinkles and the almonds and the, you know, the, you mentioned the pine nuts and I'm sure, you know, food coloring, you name it, lots of powdered oh, yeah. sugar. Um, a lot, and I can smell it as well. I'm sure anise was involved somewhere. And if oh, it wasn't, yes. I don't know what the you're doing. Pizzelles. I can't That's believe you right.
1: didn't mention pitzels. Of course there's pizzazz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I actually, I still have a,
3: I make pit cells every Christmas as well. And for those, for our listeners who are not as familiar, these are the thin wafered like cookies that kind of are some, they're round, but they kind of have usually a design on them, kind of like a star shape. And the more traditional Italian way of making them is with anise, which is a licorice flavor. Um, sometimes people make it with vanilla. They make it with lemon. You can make it any way you want, really. But the traditional way is anise and they are, a staple in uh, on the cookie tables. And in our region, actually a staple that you can get in a lot of um, bakeries, even at, at chain grocery stores, you can you can find them um, to buy in packs of you know a dozen uh, that you can take home. So that's how integrated some of these flavors are in the community. You don't necessarily need to just wait to go to a wedding. Um, people are so familiar with these ethnic flavors that you can pick them up at the local grocery store.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I might go do that after we're off the the, uh, show. (laughs) Agreed.
3: So I I got one more question for you, Selena, because, you know, we in this show, we've talked about the Midwest as, you know, a region, but also Midwestern food kind of as a state of mind. And Western Pennsylvania bridges an interesting gap because we don't count Pennsylvania, technically speaking, as part of the Midwest. It's Part of the Mid Atlantic region, as you know, if you're going to get technical with the map. But as you and I know, you know, cultural differences exist, and they even exist in in you know in, in many states. But you know, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are very different. In Ohio, Cleveland and Cincinnati are very different, and and so you know, western Pennsylvania, I would say is an adopted part of the Midwest, because culturally, whether it's because we have that connection to industry and the mills and the coal mines um, and and the ethnic immigrants that came to our communities, I feel as if we're closer linked in the Three Rivers area uh, all the way up to Erie, Pennsylvania, than you would be to Philadelphia. And And so do you get that sense? And do you feel comfortable being on a show about the Midwest talking Midwestern food traditions?
1: Absolutely. I have always considered uh, Pittsburgh part of the Midwest. I mean, from my backyard to the Ohio state line, it's 22 miles. Right. My, mean, my, I'm nine. I'm nine yeah. to Sharon, to Sharon, PA. So, you know, we are much more culturally connected to the Midwest. Um, you know, we also have that bit of and, and the same goes for where you live. You have that that bit of Appalachia in you as well. Yep. Uh and so I think that that's what between between the Midwest and the Appalachia. I think that's what makes Pittsburgh much more connected to to Ohio, to Youngstown, um even to Cleveland. We are much more similar to Cleveland or Columbus than we are to uh to Philadelphia or New York. We may geographically on a map you might say, "Oh, it looks like you belong here," but if you spend longer than 15 minutes in Pittsburgh, you're like, "Oh, yeah this is the midwest and it and it is as you said it has a lot to do with our migration patterns it has a lot to do with industry also the farming and mm-hmm. the uh less Um, I don't want to say, not the word sophisticated, but the less city-centric ideals in the way of life. I'm not talking about anything other than way of life. It is a much slower pace here. um, and, And that is much more in tune with our Ohio cousins than it is with Philadelphia.
3: Agreed. And on this final note, we say pop and so do you. And yeah. those guys on the other side of Pennsylvania say soda, and that is fighting words to anybody in the Midwest. Yeah, pop nice. is
1: not. We 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 drink pop here, and, and we also say yins. And I have heard yins over in Youngstown. I've oh heard yeah, it said there.
3: Oh yeah, we have. Depending on what side of town you you're on, um, so we're giving we're we're giving a good insight to our <laughs> listeners about our little corner of the world and just in a 60-mile radius how much culture we have and how unique we are as, as, a, as a subset of the American Midwest uh, and as Italian-Americans sharing this wonderful ethnic tradition of the cookie table. Um, Selena Zito, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day and your busy schedule to be with us.
1: Thanks so much. It was a
3: blast.